Are you ready for some nosy bitches? Because this is about to get explicit. Hey, bitches. Hey, bitches. Welcome back. We have made it through Johnny Depp and Amber Heard shenanigans. Before we dive into anything else, I just want to say thank you, guys. Thank you. We have heard such good positive feedback so if you're listening and you're with us please please like subscribe and rate us wherever you're listening to our podcast seriously there are algorithm gods out there and we need y'all to help us out with them also along with that what you get in return for helping us out by liking subscribing rating reviewing all the things we also want to hear from you you've been on this journey with us for a couple of episodes now if you have any ideas for what a future episode could be about please hit us up on social media or email us at nosybeesforlife at gmail.com. That's N-O-S-E-Y-B-E-E-S, the number four, L-I-F-E, at gmail.com. Thanks, Michael. As we go from a pop culture case and really kind of dig into our true crime cases, this is a case that has intrigued and infuriated us for over 30 years at this point. Yeah. We're going to talk about John Benet Ramsey. Oof. Her murder, the investigation that happened, and then the multiple suspects that they've had along the way. I think that it would be good for us to talk a little bit that we can find about her family and her life. While she was so young, she still made such an impression on the ones that loved her. So we can do her some justice there. That's right. I remember this case being everywhere when I was growing up, just everywhere. I was nine years old when this happened in 1996. I was getting ready to turn 10 and there was not a single news channel for, not just during the time when this first happened, but for years to come that did not cover this. So stinking tragic. I think it's important for us to note that we are not experts. We are not criminologists. We are not lawyers. We are not private investigators. Carla and I are nosy as fuck, but we are none of those things. So we are going to do our best to talk through this in a really unbiased fashion. Yeah, this really is, as we promised, our unsolicited feedback on it. I really believe that this case is going to be solved. I think before I die, this case is going to be solved. There's DNA in this case. Touch DNA. I didn't even know that was a thing until some of the research that we did on this. Of course, I'm older than Michael. I was 14 at the time. And actually, when I told my mom that we were doing this case, she was telling me how my grandmother constantly had like tabloid, maybe it was like Inquirer type newspapers. And yeah. it was, John Bonet was on every cover, everywhere. The media really played a big part in this case. And we'll talk about it later. But it's so interesting as, especially as I look back on cases, I've done this a few times. I've looked back on like the OJ case. I looked back on like the Lorena Bobbitt case and how the media affects what later I thought happened. Yes. As an adult, going back and listening to the case and listening to the facts, how different I feel about it because you can take all the media blitz out of it. There was so much focus on a few certain suspects in this case and that's all you were fed by the media. And I know for me, I grew up absolutely thinking this case is going one direction because of that. The media controls so much of that narrative. 
there were definitely biffs by the media and by law enforcement that we'll get into that yep. made this just so, besides the fact that it was truly tragic. And she really was this electric little girl. You see some of the footage of her in some of these pageants and it was just incredible what she did. There really was this, you felt drawn to her because of some of her charisma and her personality. It just made it stick for so long. It was everywhere and everyone had opinions about it because of the unique circumstances in this case. Even today, I was talking to a few people saying like, hey, this is like what we're researching or, you know, as we dig into like our first true crime, there are so many things that people don't remember about the details of what happened. I hope we are telling you a full story and that you walk away with a new understanding of what happened really 30 years later. Oh my gosh. I think it's more than 30 years. I do want to point out though, if you really want to deep dive like we did into this case, then there's a podcast you need to listen to. It came out a couple of years ago and it's called The Killing of John Bonet, The Final Suspect. So good. So good. It's really such a great podcast. This is done in conjunction with John Ramsey and his family. You hear from John Benet's older brother. Yep. You hear about an investigator who really made it his life's mission to investigate it. And then now his daughter has taken it on and everything they're looking into. When I looked and searched through different podcasts, this one really told the full story. It talks about what happened with the murder. If you're looking to deep dive, go check it out. The Killing of John Benet, The Final Suspects. Let's dig into it. Let's dig into it. A little background on John Bonet and her family. John Bonet was born August 6, 1990, in Atlanta, Georgia. I just want to say, like, 1990 was like just a few years ago to me. It feels like just yesterday. <laughs> 1990 was a long time ago for the rest of you. She was born to John Ramsey and Patsy Ramsey. She did have some siblings, she had an older brother. Burke Ramsey, who was only three years older than her. She also had John Andrew Ramsey, Melinda Ramsey, and Elizabeth Ramsey. And that was from John's previous marriage? Is yes. That right? okay. Yeah. John was previously married and he did have three children from the previous marriage and then two with Patsy. John Bonet was named after her father and John will talk about how that was something that she would brag about. I'm actually named after my dad, so I get that. She would tell this story about how, oh, I was named after my dad. It's such a unique thing, right? Like daughters are typically after the mother or the grandmother. That's so cool. And she definitely had such a cute little name with lots of flair and personality. If you haven't had the opportunity, you should definitely Google some of her videos. She was a very bright and vivacious young girl. There's lots of videos and pictures of her and you can see like she's always smiling. She's part of this big family. So it's a big family of five. And her name really like even the punctuation in the name, all the accents above the E's and everything that seems to suit that personality perfectly. Her parents, a little bit about them. John Ramsey worked for Access Graphics. He was a very successful businessman. This computer company, just kind of to relate it to, I think, you know, 2022 terms, it is actually a subsidiary of Lockheed Martin. So he was a- Get it, John Ramsey, okay. Yeah, okay. he was a very successful, and it said that they had yachts, <laughs> they had private jets. I think they even had like two. Can please just one of my friends, please have a private plane. We're trying to talk one set of our friends into getting a boat now. Like at our last place, we had a pool set up and we were like, we've offered to this friendship now. We need you to also offer up to this friendship with a boat. That's 
Come on. I think that's a fair recommendation to like, <laughs> or a fair demand as part of your friendship agreement that like you both should be bringing things into the table. None of this was the level of success of John Ramsey though, right? What was the size of the house that you told me? It was something insane. So it was over 11,000 square feet. It had oh, they had money. Five bedrooms and eight baths. I always wonder like, why do you have so many bedrooms compared to bathrooms? But also I came from a big family, so it makes sense to me. <laughs> They were very wealthy for the 90s. Honestly, they're very wealthy for 2022. But at that time, I think they were worth something around like six or seven million dollars. Yeah, I mean, in today's money, that'd be like someone being worth closer to 2025. Big deal. We said he was very successful. He was also very smart. He was very accomplished in his career. He was older than Patsy. She, of course, was his second wife. And I think there was about 13 years between the two of them. Before Patsy was a mom, she was an American beauty pageant winner, and she actually won Miss West Virginia in 1977 at the age of 20. Okay, Patsy, get it. She went to West Virginia University and graduated with her journalism degree. I'm already jealous of this woman. She's beautiful enough to win a pageant, and I'm going to go get some education along the way, too. She held a bachelor's degree in journalism. Like She was a very smart lady all on her own. So she's only 23 when she marries John, and I really have to give her credit to be so young and marry a man who had three kids. She married John November 5th, 1980. I want to tell a little story about something that John Ramsey shared about the night that John Bonet was born. So first they had Burke, and then they had John Bonet, and they lived in Atlanta, and I guess they live like maybe six miles or so from the hospital. And Patsy says, like most wives do to their husband, it's time to go. They get in the car and John Ramsey is flying to get there. He was quoted saying he was somewhere close to 100 miles. I would be An hour. (laughs) And like John Ramsey, arrive alive. Arrive alive. So they get there to the hospital and right away... John Benet is born. I guess the doctor jokes to John, like, you need to live closer to the hospital with the next one. I do also kind of wonder, like, will Patsy talk about how fast the birth of a child <laughs> would it's she a regard? Perspective. Yeah, I don't know. Like, I've heard from you know many men where they're like, "Oh yeah, that was so fast." And no, I remembered like every second of the you know six hours I delivered this child. Apparently, my mom reminds me every birthday I took thirty six hours to be born. I'm sorry, mom. I love you. John is quoted saying that. John Bonet arrived with a bang, and that's how she was in life. I felt Aww. like that was a really sweet tidbit. And I think, again, if you look at some of the pictures and you hear about some of the stories of John Bonet, and she was extroverted and she's dancing and and really loved this pageant life that her that they she was involved in, you can see that full energy. Also, she's the baby to five siblings. Yeah. I can imagine her as the epitome of like a bratty little sister. Her older siblings are a lot older, so I'm sure she's getting lots of love and, you know, probably on their nerves a lot as well. Absolutely. As the baby should. Patsy was very successful into this beauty pageant world, and that's what she wanted for her daughter. She had a son, and then here's this young lady that comes along, this little girl that she can dress up, and John Bonet was very successful in pageants. She sang, she danced, and there's a lot of grief around the fact that Patsy had her in. And I would say that I think it's a generalization in general for people who have their children in pageants. This is something that made Patsy a very successful woman. It was something that she took 
all the way. She graduated from college. She had a very successful run with it. I think we need to give her some grace about it. I don't think it is as big of a deal as everybody makes it. I know a lot of people who've done pageants throughout their lives or have their kids in pageants. While it's not my cup of tea, really just mainly because I'm cheap and I don't want to pay for it. (laughs) Right. I understand why people like this. I think sometimes it gets a little bit of unfair judgment. So my stepsister that is closest in age to me did some pageants. She's beautiful, well-spoken woman. It was not the negative stereotypes that you hear about it from some people. I get the criticism. I do. Like it, it does feel like there is this opportunity for it to be about objectifying women, especially really young women and girls, like what you're happening in these child pageants. But it's also this really effective manner of developing a way to speak to crowds and to be able to do that effectively and to be able to sound smart under pressure, to be able to use some of your talents under pressure. I think there are some real skills there. And I think if we were to ask my sister about her experience, she would probably say the same thing, that it was more of a confidence building thing. You're with these other smart, successful women up on a stage all trying to do your best and be your best. There's some criticism out there too, but let's just make sure we're highlighting some of the positive aspects of this life and this way of doing things. I really think that just because this isn't your way of parenting or this isn't an activity, I would say like some of the things I know parents who have their children in travel, baseball, or football or different things at such a young age. They're spending an incredible amount of money. It's an incredible amount of pressure. I would say the same thing. Just because that's your way of parenting doesn't make it bad. I think along the way, we just have to give some grace. And maybe that's a perspective that we look back 30 years later that we're like, you know what? That's really not that big of a deal. Well, and also I feel like some of the negative press around pageantry came from this case because of these outcomes. Just understand that the mindset back in the 90s was very different. John Bonet hadn't happened yet. We didn't have all of that to layer on as far as bad feelings around pageantry. And that's the exact pictures that was plastered all over the media. Everywhere. I think that's a very valid point. At this point, they moved from Atlanta, Georgia to Boulder, Colorado. And so... I love you, Boulder. Yeah, Boulder at the time. There had only been one murder case in all of Boulder for the whole year. Boulder was not having any crime. So let's set this up. It's Christmas morning. And Christmas morning starts out like any other morning, probably for most families. You get up, you open presents as a family. They decide to go have dinner with some of their neighbors that they're really good friends with. They come home and they talk about how they're going to be flying out the next day. They're going to visit John's other children. I believe it's either they're starting in Florida and then going to Michigan, but they're flying out the next day. And those children are also flying out the next day from Atlanta. So it's Christmas evening. John Ramsey says they come home. John Bonet is asleep and they put her up to her bed. And then John Ramsey plays with his son, Burke. And Patsy begins to pack. Probably like most of us moms, when we're getting ready to travel with our kids, we're very busy packing. Burke goes to sleep. John and Patsy go to sleep. This is where the story starts to turn sideways. The next morning, probably around 5 a.m., Patsy gets up. And I believe that there's a couple of stories where I think John is either awake or he's in the shower, but he has not gone downstairs. So Patsy goes to get coffee, probably like most of us, especially at 5 a.m. But she's heading down the stairs and it's not normal stairs. It's those iron wrought spiral stairs. Oh, yeah, yeah. 
So she's heading. Of course heading, it is, and their eleven thousand square foot house. <laughs> right. She's heading down their stairs, and on the third step, there is a two and a half page note written out. Oh, shit. She picks it up and starts to read it. Michael, I'll have you read essentially what Patsy starts to read. All right. It reads, Mr. Ramsey, listen carefully. We are a group of individuals that represent a small foreign faction. We respect your business, but not the country that it serves. At this time, we have your daughter in our possession. She is safe and unharmed. If you want her to see 1997, you must follow our instructions to the letter. You will withdraw $118,000 from your account. $100,000 will be in $100 bills, and the remaining $18,000 in $20 bills. Make sure that you bring an adequate size attache to the bank. When you get home, you will put the money in a brown paper bag. I will call you between 8 and 10 a.m. tomorrow to instruct you on delivery. The delivery will be exhausting, so I advise you to be rested. If we monitor you getting the money early, we might call you early to arrange an earlier delivery of the money, and hence a earlier pickup of your daughter. Any deviation of the instructions will result in the immediate execution of your daughter. You will also be denied her remains for proper burial. The two gentlemen watching over your daughter do not particularly like you, so I advise you not to provoke them. Speaking to anyone about your situation, such as police, FBI, etc., will result in your daughter being beheaded. If we catch you talking to a stray dog, she dies. If you alert bank authorities, she dies. If the money is in any way marked or tampered with, she dies. You will be scanned for electronic devices, and if any are found, she dies. You can try to deceive us, but be warned that we are familiar with law enforcement countermeasures and tactics. You stand a 99% chance of killing your daughter if you try to outsmart us. Follow our instructions, and you stand a 100% chance of getting her back. You and your family are under constant scrutiny, as well as the authorities. Do not try to grow a brain, John. You are not the only fat cat around, so don't think that killing will be difficult. Don't underestimate us, John. Use that good southern common sense of yours. It is up to you now, John. Victory. S-B-T-C. What a fucked up note. Yeah, there's so much to unpack about this ransom note. And so we're going to circle back to it kind of once we get through some of the facts of this case. Because there is so much to unpack about this ransom note. Hold that in your memory. I'm sure Patsy cannot even make it through. I would be flipping out. Yeah, I probably... Flipping out. Honestly, I probably would have read the ransom note, went up and checked where my child is. If at that point I'm realizing that my child isn't there, I'm then realizing that somebody has been in my house. Yes. And I'm going to get the fuck out. Like, I am going to be... I'm over the deed. Yeah, like, I'm, I'm, I'm out. out. There's no opportunity that you're going to see me in that house, not one more day. Nope. Patsy reads this message. She does run upstairs to check John Bonet's room. John Bonet is not there. Oh, can you just even imagine what that would have felt like? No. Uh, oh my God. I have, I honestly, like I've tried to find the words of like how I would feel and there are no words. And I hope that I never have the words to feel what that must have felt like in that moment. She does call to her husband panicking about what's happening. 
He tells her, of course, immediately call the police. Even though the ransom note says don't call the police. Immediately call the police. That's a point that I want to come back to. There's a lot of speculation around the, this police 911 call. So she calls 911 and she tells them that, that she's found this ransom note, that they believe that their daughter's been kidnapped. And essentially, like once she gives them the pertinent information, you know, who she is, where they can find her at, and what's happening, she's not, she doesn't want to talk to the 911 operator anymore, which I can get. It's not like there's a person next to her that she's needing to help with or she's needing to wait for 911 to get there. My daughter is missing. Right. My daughter's missing. Here's my address. Here's my name. Bye. Got some other things to figure out right now. I'm going back into crisis mode. But the big speculation around this 911 call is that, again, it's 1996. So they have a corded phone. And back then, if you tried to hang up the phone, a lot of times, unless you like really clicked it good, you could hit the receiver where they could still hear you. You wouldn't hang up all the way. That's right. So there's some inaudible noises afterwards. There's been a lot of tests on these noises. I listen to the inaudible sound. I'm not hearing much. I do think that you hear something like, oh my heaven, oh my God, like what happened? Questions like that. Which feels like a very appropriate response given the situation. Very appropriate response given, especially if you understand who Patsy is. She's a very Southern. She's a very religion. She's very devout in her she, And also faith. a bit of a debutante. There's some speculation about whether or not they hear Burke, whether or not they hear John in the... I've listened to it. I don't hear anything. That doesn't mean... There's also nothing that has come from this. At the end of the day, about the audible noise, there really has not been any facts. It really just is that. It's speculation. It's storytelling and people grasping like all of us are. They want an answer to this, and I get that. I think my desire would be to make sure that's appropriately placed and trying to pick it out of this terrible audio. It really is difficult to hear anything in there. To try to pin it on the parents because that's the most obvious and maybe easiest to to digest solution. Right. I don't think that serves anyone. No, this is the day after Christmas. I kind of think about it like the Disney World bubble. You're in a holiday. You're getting ready to travel again. Yes. You don't think that you're going to wake up Christmas morning and your child is going to be missing from their bed. It's such a good point. This would be a shock any day. But on this day, when everything is supposed to be going right with the world and you're really supposed to be just celebrating with your family and your loved ones, this is what you wake up to. I can only imagine that throws you off even more. Here's the next kind of speculation point. So while they're waiting for the police... They call their neighbors, who they had had dinner with the night before. And I believe they call one other friend, but they also call their pastor. For Boulder, Colorado, they find this very weird. I think for us in the South, this is not weird at all. Like Mississippi, Alabama, this ain't weird. I know people today that if something was going wrong, like they're immediately going to call their pastor to come there. This is a family who has a strong foundation in their faith, in their religion. So for them, they're going to pray her home. Like I know that that's where it's going. Honestly, I'm surprised there's not like a prayer chain. If it was on Facebook, she'd be on Facebook posting for prayers at this moment. That part of it doesn't feel weird. I also don't think that it feels weird. To them, this is a kidnapping. It doesn't feel weird that she then calls their friend. If something happened to my spouse or one of my children, I'm definitely calling my friends to come over and be there with me in that moment. That was my immediate thought was, I know there's a lot of scrutiny around this. I'm not sure that I would call my pastor, but if there was some sort of 
leader or religious figure that I really trusted, I absolutely would do that because I'm going to need some spiritual guidance after this, even if my daughter is returned to me fully safe. And then my second thought on that was absolutely like, I'm calling you, Carla, our other two friends that we're really close with. That's going to be like one of my first calls because you want those people. I'm going through a crisis. I want those people that are going to help me get through the next few hours. I just, I don't know. I did not find it particularly strange. And I know from a crime scene perspective, the police show up and from their point of view, this is not good. There's a lot of people there. I will say that from that moment when the police show up, there is a series of events of missed opportunities yes. or missteps or I think we could probably go as far as calling them even botches. I respect the police. It's a very hard job that they do. But I think looking back and in hindsight, you have to understand that these are lessons learned along the way. I think it's probably on both sides, both from the family and both from the police. They were both placed in incredible situations. And as we said, Boulder only had one murder at that time. The Boulder police literally are one step above you and I, Michael, I, at this point. I don't, the level of nosy one that murder. you are though, Carla, you might be aware of where they were. But it, this really stuck out to me when we were doing some research around this, that the Ramsey family even tried to be like, let's get the state police involved. Let's get the FBI involved. But there's jurisdiction for a reason. And they weren't trying to disrespect that. I, I got none of that from John in the interviews that I've read and what we listened to on the killing of John Bonet, the final suspects. It really was this guy that was just like, listen, this is a complex case already for the best people out there. And Boulder Police, you might not be that. Can we maybe call in people that have handled more than one murder in the last year? This is a crime scene. This is a kidnapping. We have a ransom note. This is a kidnapping scene. Someone has been in that house and taken that child. And now you have four or five extra people in there. So really from a crime scene perspective, which of course I think in 2022 we really understand. But from a crime scene perspective, they honestly should have started to isolate, take them out, start to separate them, understand, starting to asking questions. But that's not what happened. This is a very well-to-do neighborhood. These are very well-to-do people. They're probably very instrumental in their community. I think the police are probably treating them with kid gloves and just being careful for politics or maybe they're worried about something. So that's not really what happens. They let the people there. They don't separate John and Patsy. They don't start asking questions. The only thing that they do that I think is really probably like investigative is they ask for handwriting analysis when they're reviewing the ransom note. That falls in line with a police investigation. That was a good step for them. They do a corsary scan of the home. Now again, it's 11,000 square foot house. It's a huge house. So they really just kind of over, just look around. They do, do not do a deep dive into this house. They're not looking in every corner and crevice. And I think that's definitely where they went wrong. I mean, that is step number one. I'm even thinking about the best case scenario in this, which is someone's just playing a really, really gross prank on the Ramses, And that child is just hanging out somewhere in their house. Like if I'm the police investigator and I got no investigative training right here, but I'm gonna go into every closet, every under the stairwell space that I can find just to make sure that this child isn't innocently hiding away in the next room. Not because I think that, that that's actually a possibility because at that point they probably weren't thinking that was really going to happen, but just so that you can rule that out even as a possibility. 
children just in general. Like, they play pranks. They yes. hide. This ransom note was very strange. While I don't know that a six-year-old or a nine-year-old would have wrote it, I'd definitely be searching the house. The story kind of goes to, like, how dramatic I am. But I definitely used to leave, like, dear diary notes to my mom <laughs> about did. how I was, like, going to run away. And I would leave them for her, like, on the kitchen table. But I would be, like, just out of sight. Yeah. So she would know I hadn't run away, but my mom like was not here for my bullshit and she would like crumple it up and like throw it away. So it didn't work. So that is, that's exactly what I would do. I'd come in that house and be like, listen, let's just make sure she's not somewhere here in this house and search every crevice. But that's not what they did. So they did this very minor search of the house. And then a couple of the investigators decide to go search the neighborhood. They're searching the neighborhood and the hours are starting to pass and they decide, you know what? Okay, look. John, can you and your friend, you and your neighbor, you guys go do a deep search of the house. Look at this house from top to bottom. What is amiss? What's missing? Carla, like you're asking someone that is later going to be, we know, one of your prime suspects to go search the house on your behalf. There's no way that should have happened. Uh, What? The police should have been the ones who are searching the house. Because the other thing is that what if they find her? Which, of course, is is what happens. But, like, what... You don't want a parent to be the one that finds her. That's definitely another misstep from the police, is that the police officer should have been the one walking through the house with John Ramsey and the neighbor or his friend and going through. They decide to start at the very bottom. And I think it's important to note that their basement was a bigger basement and wine cellar. And so they had some toys there. I mean, they it was had some the whole storage. Of the upstairs too. I mean, it was a full size basement. Yeah, it, it's a huge area. They also had some spaces there that were like closed behind extra doors, so it wasn't just like one big open wide spaces. It definitely had sections that were sectioned off. They decide to search the entire basement area, and in one area behind a closed door that had no windows, he opens it and he finds John Benet. <sighs> He finds her body. She's wrapped in like a white sheet or a blanket. He talks to that. He was relieved at that moment. Like he'd found her. Oh, he doesn't know she's dead yet. Right. He doesn't realize. And maybe he does, but his consciousness will not allow him to go there. Right. So immediately he goes to her and her mouth is taped and he removes the tape from her mouth, picks her up and carries her upstairs. And the whole time he's running upstairs... He's screaming that he's found her. The heartbreaking part is that you have to believe from that recount that he really does feel like he's found her alive. We told you we'd give our opinions about who we think didn't do it. That is a very hard reaction to fake. I agree, 100%. When I hear the descriptions of it, both in the police reports from people that were there, from John himself when he recounts it, this sounds like someone that truly thought there might be just a glimmer of hope that they found their daughter alive. You hear about so many cases where parents are faced with this kind of thing. And I can imagine the amount of denial that happens in this case. And I can't imagine that I would react any different. You see your child there. Your first instinct is to run to your child. Here's another point that causes a lot of speculation and really a lot of angst and a lot of missteps. So when we talk about missteps from the police, this is a misstep from the family. This is a crime scene. This now what we know to be a body has been tampered with. 
But I don't know that her dad thought that at first. I think he's just seeing his child and running to it. I don't know that I would have done in 1996 any different. Now, maybe in 2022, I might have different, but I think like an instinct between a child and a parent, it just circumvents all rational thinking. Him running towards her, removing the tape, picking her up, carrying her upstairs. That's a natural parent reaction. And again, I don't think that it's indicative of anyone that was trying to cover something up. I really think it was like, I found my daughter. Right. Like, let me make sure that you're okay. I'm trying to make it okay. I completely Until agree. that horrific realization that it's so not okay. And I'm sure at some point that he's running up. And he does say that like when he places her upstairs that he realizes. It didn't take long. That John right. Bonet was gone. But it doesn't at that moment. His wife doesn't realize that John Bonet's gone. But then what happens to further disrupt the crime scene? You now have moved a body upstairs. You now have removed evidence. Put additional fingerprints on. Put additional fingerprints. Her mother, who is in absolute shock, who is crying, screaming, holding on to the body, crying over the body. You know, I think over the last couple of years of COVID, I'm very aware of like body fluids and things like that. She's She's heavily crying. So you have completely contaminated that section of the body and touched it. But also it's such a natural parental reaction to what you're having to face. So at that time, they're calling the other police officers who are searching the neighborhood. And they come back. And that's essentially like what they walk into is Patsy hanging over the body of John Bonet, holding on to her. And crying. The police officers then realize, like, we're definitely in now a murder crime scene and not a kidnapping. And this becomes very different. And I think for Patsy, she was so distressed that the police officers actually had to get reinforcements from her pastor to say, like, hey, can you help me get Patsy to let go of John Bonet? I know, I can't even imagine. These moments forever change these families. Like, you talk about pivotal moments in their life that are forever changed. This day after Christmas morning forever changes them. The police are able to get Patsy to let John Bonet go. They call the coroner, the medical examiner, and have the body of John Bonet removed. So at this point, it really does transition from a kidnapping into a murder investigation. And it probably changed the way they're thinking and they realize that some of the things that maybe they had allowed to happen, now it's time to get more serious. That is the other part of this that in credit to the police, did not realize they had a murder on their hands. No, this is a murder of a six-year-old child. Oh, things go from bad to ugly in a matter of, really for them, in a matter of hours. But if you think for the Ramseys, it goes from good, bad to ugly in a matter of like 12 hours. They go to bed the night before on Christmas Day. They're just preparing for vacation the next day. And they wake up and their whole lives are flipped upside down. And now they are slap dab in the middle of a murder investigation. I just cannot even imagine what is going through their psyche at that point i think it's good for us to now now that we know this is no longer a kidnapping and probably for the police too this is their point of view now it's no longer a kidnapping now we know that it's a murder let's go back to that ransom note and talk about the craziness of yes so besides the fact that it's extremely long it's like two and a half pages 
I've watched some investigations that were later done and they had people write it out. And I think it took somewhere like around 20 minutes to write it out. This was a very long written note and probably looking at who might have done this, that it's an extremely long time to be in the house. There are a lot of investigators who truly believe that whoever did this to John Bonet, that this ransom note was not written after, but is written before because they felt like the person who did this would either be like too hyped up or too excited or have too many feelings that they would not have been able to write this. This is not normally what you get in a ransom note. Like no. ransom notes are to the point, give me $118,000, you get your daughter back, I'll call you. Well, and some of the other evidence around this, like we know from some things they would find out later that there was a broken window leading into the Ramsey's basement. It was this idea that there was opportunity and possibility for someone to get into the house ahead of time and lay in wait. Because remember, they had been out at some friend's house all day there. It even makes sense from that standpoint. Someone's gotten into the house and now they're literally waiting. What else do I do with my time besides write a crazy ass note? Because why not? And that's really what John Ramsey believes happened is that somebody came in. So to that point, he talks about how they had a security system, but it didn't even work at the time. He's not even sure that he locked his door on the regular. They lived in this gated community in a super nice area. And he talks about like how innocently thinking that they were safe, that they were. But they go off to dinner to their neighbor's house. So he definitely doesn't think about maybe did I lock all the doors? And then besides, even if you did lock all the door, you've got an entrance that you generally use when you locked yourself out that you broke the window and never had fixed. I will say too, like anytime, we don't live in a neighborhood now, but when we did live in a neighborhood, I would not have thought twice about leaving my house completely unprotected if I'm just going one or two houses down. Like you, I know that's not true at all, but in our minds, there's this proximity bias where I'm close enough to my home, surely no one would do anything, or surely I'm close enough that if anyone tried to break in, I'd hear it or see it or something. I, it's not an excuse. Like, of course, I'm sure they learned a lot of lessons that day right. about never, ever leave something that vulnerable again. I'm just saying from my standpoint as someone that's like been in a, a nicer gated community before, I wouldn't have thought twice about it. No, and it's 1996. It's not the world of ring or cameras. I get notified every 20 minutes if a cat walks by that's my front right. door. Yeah. So a stiff breeze goes by. Yeah. Hello. And they <laughs> yeah. were just at their neighbor's house. The house was definitely left to your point at a place where somebody could come in. One of the things that the police notates is that the ransom note has movie phrases in it. And so ransom at the time had not long come out and then speed. And they both have references from there, but there's also references to Dirty Harry. And for the police, their spidey senses are like, oh, well also those movies are something that's in the Ramsey house. Those are very popular movies. They're probably in a lot of people's houses, though. Right. Probably also, too, like, $7 million, you know, worth people have quite a few movies. They probably have a entertainment center in their house with, like, 300 VHSs at that time. I promise you I ain't worth nothing close to $7 million, and I got more movies than I know what to do with. 
So this ransom note, it's it's honestly, it's a very interesting piece of evidence. I I don't know what to do with it. I'll be honest. Like even thirty something years later, I do not know what to do with it. It doesn't make sense. It's so messed because up. obviously they find John Binet. They investigate the situation. The pad that the note was written on was found in the Ramsey house along with the pen. Now they did handwriting analysis. John Ramsey, along with Burke Ramsey, who's only nine, is cleared. Now, while Patsy was never technically cleared, she also didn't match. She was inconclusive. I also just can't imagine Patsy Ramsey honestly doing anything to John Bonet, let alone writing this crazy ransom note. It doesn't even compute with me the idea that she would somehow be involved. And I have to think, you know, I, I'm not trying to, again, poo-poo the police, just like you said, Carla, my, my stepdad was a police officer. Please don't come at me. I have so much respect for law enforcement. But it's, if they legitimately thought that Patsy was a viable suspect in this and they didn't go after her, shame on you. The other thing that's weird about this ransom note is the amount of money. So we've said a couple of times they were worth like $7 million. Yeah, why aren't you asking for like half a million bucks? Yeah, they're only asking for like 118000 which I guess was similar to the bonus that John Ramsey had received that year. Yeah. But still, so that part of it didn't make sense. But also, if we went down the rabbit hole that someone in that house wrote it, wouldn't they then write it for more money? I mean, it just, it feels like such a specific amount as to be some sort of vendetta, which we'll talk about in the next episode, is a big theory behind this, right? There are only a couple of theories about how this could have happened. It feels like with an amount that specific that also happens to nearly identically match the amount of his most recent bonus, I, I that to me would have been setting off alarm bells. Like, why such a specific amount? Where did you even get that amount? Like, 118,000 is such a random number, and to know that it so closely matches an actual number that was in your life, I don't understand how that was so easily ignored by officers at the time. I don't even know what to do with this ransom note. The other thing is the spelling of the words are a big subject. He misspells, or I say he, whoever wrote it, misspells words like business, adds like an extra S, but gets the correct spelling of... Attaché. Thank you, Michael. (laughs) Because I can barely say the word, let alone spell it. Yeah. It didn't make sense to me either. It came across to me, and I read this in a couple of articles around this as well, someone trying to come off as stupid but wasn't doing a very good job of hiding it. They were trying to throw someone off their trail. That's what it came off as to me. As far as a ransom note, that's where it goes. There's some of the speculation around it, and then there's some of the facts. Honestly, I think even this many years later, none of us really know what to do with this ransom note. I do want to talk about what happened to John Bonet. We know, of course, that her father found her with duct tape over her mouth. He removed that, but in the process, the coroner does come back and report that it appears as though that she died from both blunt force trauma to her head and also strangulation. She does have marks on her neck and on her back that appear to be from a stun gun. There's a lot of kind of speculation later about whether or not it's actually a stun gun. But as far as the coroner report, the official report, it is a stun gun. And from what I read on this, like there was, there were markings on other people that had been affected by a similar to a stun gun sort of device and the markings were consistent. 
And when we say blunt force trauma to the head, like let's be clear here, and I understand, so trigger warning, if this upsets you, please just skip forward about a minute and you'll be clear of this, but literally her skull was fractured. Yeah. This six-year-old skull, someone hit her hard enough on the head to crack her skull, quite literally. It also appears to be some type of overkill. So honestly, there was no point to do any strangulation at that moment because the blunt force trauma would either have killed her or, or at least knocked her, her out. Well, it would have made her brain dead at that moment. Like yeah. there was too much trauma to the brain that it's nothing she would have ever came back for. They do find that there is evidence of sexual assault along with fibers. There is some form of DNA on her body. Oh While there was no semen DNA there is DNA that they found. Now, how much DNA or exactly where it's found, some of those facts have still been kept with the Boulder police as part of the investigation, but we do know that there was DNA, it wasn't semen DNA, and that everything led them to believe that there was some type of sexual assault, which included, I think, fibers on her. Well, and some of it was where it was found. Some of this was found on her underwear and under her long, on her long johns. Like, it was found in an area where it is not normal to find other people's DNA. Right. Especially on a child. This is not an adult where they would have had consensual intimate contact. Other DNA, in most circumstances, should not have been there. Absolutely. Her hands were also bound, along with being having duct tape over her mouth her hands were also found to be bound. This poor little girl. The investigation, I think, really begins there. But in the meantime, they do process John Bonet. She's later buried in Marietta, Georgia. In the process between John Bonet being born and John Bonet passing away, John's oldest daughter also passed away from a car accident. So she, Elizabeth, she's buried there as well. And then later... Patsy does pass away in 2006 from ovarian cancer. And so those three ladies are all buried in the same area, buried together. That's a lot of loss. Like, damn. It's an incredible amount of grief that he has had to endure over the last 30 years. And I don't know how he gets up every day. Like, I know, which is, you know, he, he had a big family. He has three other children who are today, I'm sure, his grandchildren. I do know that he's remarried now. He stays pretty active in the public view. And so I know that he's filling his life with that. But that doesn't change the fact that your six-year-old was murdered. You had to figure out how to bury and go on with her. Your 22-year-old daughter died in a car accident. Your wife died from ovarian cancer. It's just a lot of grief to deal with. I seriously, if I were in his shoes, would feel like a cursed human being. <laughs> and as if all of that grief isn't enough, you're also dealing with this constant swirl of media speculation that you were involved in at least your daughter's. Yeah. Daughter. So that's the point. So I want to take us all the way back to 1996. Yeah. So now that we kind of know what happened with John Benet Ramsey, now let's talk about the fallout from her murder. Yeah. So immediately, of course, anybody in that house, you want to eliminate them. Like, I think, I feel like that's standard, right? Yep. So the family, of course, they're looking to figure out how they can be eliminated. They're being talked to from the police. One of their friends actually suggests to them, like, hey, as part of this, you need a lawyer. And I do think, like... If this were my family member, this is going to be probably a high-profile case. I probably want to involve a, 
a lawyer at some point just to protect myself. I think that there are a lot of cases that we've seen throughout the last few years where innocent people are prosecuted, innocent people are dragged through the mud. And so I don't know. I don't think that necessarily points you. Maybe I'm a hypocrite because maybe it does point you. But either way, his friends do recommend to him, hey, get a lawyer and show up. They do talk to the police. There's a couple of things that John Ramsey and Patsy Ramsey do and behave. The police don't feel like it for their gut feeling. Immediately, there are conversations about the way that John Ramsey reacted to the whole situation. Patsy was very emotional, which seems pretty standard for being the mother. Honestly, that would be me. And John Ramsey was a lot more in control of his feelings was really like trying to figure out what's happening trying to get down to the business of it honestly that's my husband that's my dad if we're in an emergency situation you do not want me in your lifeboat i'm drowning us like i'm screaming i'm hollering i'm trying to i'm I'm losing it my dad or my husband they're the ones who are going to be asking the right questions and getting to the right thing this is more me too for whatever it's worth like i will have those emotional moments but it's going to be after i've done what I deem is everything that I can do in order to move this forward. The other thing I'll say is that I don't think it's unusual in some of these cases for one or both parents for this to immediately, and I'm talking literally in seconds, for this to become your entire purpose in life. Yep. For my my job as a human being now at this point is to help solve this case. And I can't do that if I'm an emotional wreck. I need to get my shit together at least for these few hours that I'm with the officers. And sorry if that's not meeting some standard of how emotional I, air quotes, should be in this situation. I'm telling you, that would be my reaction. Someone does something to Thomas, I'm going into, I'm gonna help you figure this shit out mode. And when you're gone, I'll ball my eyes out. Really, that, I mean, being an emotional basket case doesn't do well for anybody. I don't think that leads to somebody's guilt. I think that police officers and investigators have a gut feeling. I'm a gut feeling kind of person. Yeah. You know, I drive from my gut most of the time, but you need to have facts to back that up. Yes. And I don't trust but verify. Right. There's not facts here. So the other things that the Ramseys do that make the police question really them or put out information that maybe the Ramseys might be guilty is the Ramseys immediately start to pull into the media attention. So Again, 1996, it's Christmas time. We see this in cases that happen around Christmas all the time. The Scott Peterson and Lacey Peterson case, it was the exact same thing. It's a slow time for media. Here is a six-year-old, beautiful, young child who's murdered in her home, and immediately it's on everything. People are looking for what's happening. The world is essentially watching at that point becomes international. Patsy and John go on to TV and they have an interview with them. At this point in time, they're already getting a feeling from Boulder police that they don't think their daughter's murder is going to be saved or that maybe the police are still looking at them when they should be looking for the murder. They're taking it in their own hands. There is kind of an infamous clip where Patsy is saying, hold your babies. There's a murderer here. And the police, I don't know if it's the next day or within the few days afterwards, come out and I was like, no, everything's fine. Like, we don't believe there's a murder. Which essentially says, like, this is a one-off event. Who one-off kills 
breaks into a house and kills a six-year-old. Well, and if I'm John and Patsy at that point, I'm completely reading that as like, oh, you you suspect us. Because if you really did feel like there was a murder and you thought it was someone besides us, you would be absolutely trumpeting those same facts out there. You shutting it down means you either A, don't believe this really is a murder, which I, I call bullshit on, they knew that at this point, and or B, you think it was us. This kind of goes back and forth between the Boulder police and the Ramseys. And really, for the most part, the investigation stalls. It doesn't seem that there's really any new information. And at that point, the media honestly doesn't know what to report. So in one situation, it's like, no, it's not the parents. It's an intruder. So that's kind of the running theme is it's either someone in the house or it's an intruder that comes into the house. And I know we're going to get into the next episode to kind of talk about who the suspects were that they were looking at. It's important to say, so in 1999, they decide to do a grand jury. So the grand jury does meet and they vote to indict the Ramses, but not on murder, but on child endangerment and obstruction of murder investigation. But the prosecutor at the time, he says, you know, I appreciate that you think that that maybe I could have child endangerment or obstruction, but there's not enough evidence, so I'm not going to bring this to light. And honestly, it was a good move because in 2009, the parents were actually, and not just the parents, everyone in the family, even the children that weren't even there that day, they were cleared by DNA because, of course, we know that they found DNA. They were cleared by DNA, it did not match the DNA that was found on John Bonet. Patsy never got to see this solved. It is so frustrating. I cannot even imagine the thought of crossing over yourself, never, even beyond it not getting solved, never having convinced a big swath of people that you didn't do it. I mean, at that point, so, you know, from 96 to 2009, so, I mean, over... Almost 15 years. Yeah, let me do some real math. Yeah. So... (laughs) A long time. (laughs) Yeah, on top of that, and at that point, too, Patsy Ramsey has passed. So she has lived this murder investigation and this overhanging that people think that she's guilty out there. I'm judging every aspect of your life, like back to the pageantry, like it, because it became bigger than just these people are guilty of endangering their child or murdering their child. It became this whole, I remember this, even as a teenager, because it was still being talked about when I was 12, 13, 14 years old. It was this whole commentary on their life. And it, it felt like such vitriol over the fact that they were a successful family, that she was a bit of a debutante, like people not understanding that way of life. In hindsight, maybe it didn't feel that way at the time, but in hindsight, it feels so gross and judgmental. And it feels like it also prevented them from really considering a full range of suspects. All the way to 2018, the Boulder District Attorney's Office finally releases a statement. It says, Boulder District Attorney's Office does not consider any member of the Ramsey family, including John, Patsy, Burke Ramsey, suspects in this case. We make this announcement now because we have recently obtained this new scientific evidence that adds significantly to the expulsion value of the previous scientific evidence that we had. In terms, let me make sure I understand that. That's basically saying we already felt like we had evidence that ruled these people out. Now we have even more. 
Correct. These people out. And it's kind of interesting that the prosecutor, they were like, we don't have enough evidence, but the Boulder police felt like they did have evidence. And you see this play back and forth. I'll say this again and again in our next episode, but to me, John Ramsey, even as close as like April of this year, he was at CrimeCon looking, trying to encourage the Boulder police to do familial DNA, do touch DNA, run more things. So like still as of April of 2022, he is looking to who murdered his child. Yes. Like is still looking for vindic, not even vindication against himself because he's kind of said all along, like this did become his passion in life. There was no way for him to have a different career after what happened with the media, what happened with the police. They moved back to Atlanta to be closer to family and really to be there where probably John Benet was buried and then later Patsy was buried. But this has still continued to be his, essentially his mission in life is to find out. We said at the top of the episode that we do believe that it's going to be found because I think they're going to find something familial DNA is something, I mean, you think about all the people who've put out their DNA, but that has to come from the Boulder police. So there's a lot of things even still happening just even a few weeks ago that are pushing this case. He's just never given up. And I don't know that that's indicative to someone that's guilty. To me, that leads to someone who is still innocent, is still looking for who did this to his child. I'm just saying if I committed a crime, I would put on a good show if I were that kind of person for a little while. But to still be doing that, coming up on 30 years later, 25, 30 years later, that doesn't seem like someone that is trying to get away with it. That seems like someone that really is trying to make sure that this thing still gets solved. That's a lot of energy put towards solving something if you are in fact the person that did it. And to what end? Like you've already lost so much of your family. You've essentially given up your career, all of the success that you once had. He gave up this entire lifestyle to try to solve his daughter's murder that doesn't feel like someone that's guilty or someone that even knew about it. Because there are also some weird swirling theories about like, well, maybe John didn't like order it or didn't do it himself, but knew about it. That these do not seem like the actions and behaviors to me of someone that knows about it, especially so long after. In the next episode, we're really going to get into some of the theories that have come out really in the last 30 years and some of the work that team has been doing regarding the investigator who spent his life. Again, if you're interested in deep diving, listening to multiple episodes about the John Bonet case, Please go listen to The Killing of John Bonet, The Final Suspects. It goes really in depth with it. I'm so glad you guys joined us and can't wait to see you in the next one. We'll see you next week, bitches. Bye. Bye. Hey, you made it to the end of the podcast. And while we love to provide our unsolicited feedback on, well, just about everything, It's always important that we try to stay kind, stay curious, but of course, stay nosy. Bitches.